sponsored by Brilliant. So I'm here with Cecilia from the iOS product team and with Katie from the privacy team. How are you? Great, thank you. I'm doing good. It's, How about you? Uh, it's fantastic. WWDC is always like Chrismaca in the middle of the year for me, where uh, you guys have been wrapping presents overnight, and we finally get to open them up, and you get to see us open them up, but we also get to start playing with all like the little Lego bricks that you've given us for the year. Yeah, it's always very exciting when we finally get to announce uh, the news and see it all out there. Um, it's really, really exciting to see, especially because we've been working on this for so long. So can we start with something that I think got a huge amount of attention r- during the announcement, and that is the new... Uh, sort of home screen experience on the iPhone, Uh, maybe widgets is a good place to start because you unveiled Dashboard over a decade ago and widgets Mm -hmm. were a big thing. And then they've lived in the today screen, but now they're becoming part of our, our everyday home screen experience. Could you get into a little bit about how that all evolved? Yeah, absolutely. So iOS 14 completely transforms the core experience on iPhone, and widgets are a huge part of that. They're beautifully redesigned with this edge-to-edge display. Um, They're really glanceable, and they essentially make your home screen so much more personal and customizable. You can add widgets um, right to the home screen, and they can come in three different sizes, in small, medium, or large. So really, you can pick and choose how much information you want on there. But what's really cool is you can choose stacks of widgets. So they really only take up that much room on your home screen, and you can flick through them and see um, up to 10 different widgets on, in that same space. And what's great about that is they're intelligent. We use on-device intelligence to surface the right widget at the right time for you. So they become really, really useful. Uh, We look at things like time, uh, location, and even activity within the app itself. So you can imagine you have, let's say, a calendar event coming up. The calendar app can let the system know that there's an update coming and then will surface that widget right on the home screen for you. So it's really useful and we think users are going to love it. So I think way back in the beginning when the iPhone was first introduced, the the home screen wasn't really ever meant to be a destination. You weren't supposed to just sit there and look at it. It was supposed to be like a gateway into apps and you'd launch into an app, come out, launch into another app. But it feels like life is so fast now that you can take the time. If all you want to do is open your phone, see a bunch of information, almost like glancing at the complications on your watch, this really serves that need. Yeah, absolutely. It is a great way to just customize that as much as as you want. So if you want to just have one widget on your home screen, you can. If you want to have a bunch of them, you can. And you can customize each page as well. So so you can have a page where you have all your work widgets, your calendar, your notes, your reminders. You can have another page that's just for fitness. Then you have your your fitness widget, um, your Nike Run Club, for example. And, And then you can have another page where you have all your entertainment um, maybe podcasts that you like to listen to, the TV widget, um, and that can be really customizable. And that way you're just getting what you need from the apps um, right when you need them. And it's, it's really interesting to me too, because I am very guilty of just downloading apps and forgetting about them. And if I need to find them after the first two pages, just like Craig said, I will go to, to search. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I have no idea what's on the third, fourth, fifth, eighth page. And you're kind of going Maria Kondo on the whole home screen system (laughs) now as well, because you can hide all those additional pages and then you have sort of this intelligent app library system to, I don't want to say impose order because it's not like, it's not dictating my apps, but it's, it's sort of putting them into places where I can better find them. 
Yes, I like that analogy. Um, I I joke that there's two kinds of people. You have the people who update um, and and organize all their apps meticulously into folders or even color code them or use some sort of scheme like that. And then you have the people who just let their apps roam free on the home screen and have like nine pages that they um, that they just try to find that way. With the app library, um, you can just organize all of that automatically for you. And I'm sort of, I used to be the sort of folder person and I would organize everything really carefully. And the minute I upgraded to iOS 14, I hid that page and now all of my apps go straight into the app library and I can find them there and they're organized automatically for me, which is great. It's just a relief that, um, that they just go there. And I can find them really easily. And with on-device intelligence, again, they come up and they're suggested just when just when I need them. So it's a really great starting point. And I really like it because I do appreciate object permanency. And that's what I've always liked about the grid of icons is that it's just muscle memory. I know exactly where they are. But beyond that, it's just, again, a place where apps go to die for me. And this gives me the best of both worlds because there was the old series suggested apps and those were really good. Like it often knew exactly what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. And this, I was never sure how you could combine those things and it wouldn't just, I forget where they were. And because this is spatially all the way to the right and you can hide all those pages in between, my mind, I don't know, my mind just sort of is contextually aware of when I'm in that app library, it looks different and I see those apps. Yeah, and this is one of the features where I, we find that I, I describe it and it sounds wonderful, but as soon as you start to use it, you really, really get it. It's just game changing. It, it really saves you time and it gets you to the apps you want right when you need them. And what's great is we use intelligence in the categories. So the categories that you use the most will be um, up top and, and also within that, within each category, the apps that you use the most will be surfaced in in the forefront as well. So you can really get to those more easily and more quickly. And one of the things we've seen over the years with, uh, you know, dashboard widgets, widgets in general, is that not everybody uses them. Not everybody changes the default. It's, you know, mainstream people kind of forgot the dashboard was there. Um, But what I like is that you're also not you're not imposing these on anybody. You, if you want them, you can go and add them. And I don't know if you have a feeling for what kind of users will add them or how many, but it, it feels like there is a passionate group of people who just love their widgets. And even if they're not for everybody, you're giving it to them. That's a really great point. I'm glad you brought that up because it's exactly it. You can you can use these features if you want to, but if you don't want to, they won't get in your way. So it's a really great way to just make this more personal and, and suit your needs. And one other great thing, especially for widgets, is that there's a widget gallery that you can bring up. And we use information of the popular widgets, sort of like a trending widgets, if you will, um, to highlight what are those popular um, widgets that a lot of people are using. And so you as a customer, maybe you, you weren't aware that this widget existed and you can just pop into the widget gallery and find things that you might like. And that's a great way to highlight you know, the work that developers are doing as well and to bring those front and center. And I don't believe they're interactive, but they do deep link. And so you you can have different zones. Is that correct? You have different zones that deep or different widgets that deep link into different parts of the apps? Yes, that's true. So the small widget has one one tap target to deep link because it's it's smaller uh, it's a smaller surface area, but the medium and large widgets you can have multiple tap targets that deep link right into the app. And if you haven't seen it, the animation just looks so beautiful. It sort of grows into the app right uh, right into that 
into that same function within the app. So it's really beautiful. The iPad experience for widgets is different and the lap, the app library isn't surfaced on the iPad, but it has a way bigger screen for you to sort of place everything where you exactly. want it. So is that something that you were thinking about when you chose how to implement them on both uh, systems? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we focused on iPhone and, and that's that's exactly it. Like you can pack more widgets onto your screen on iPad and you can also load up the dock with um, with apps. That's another quick way to get your apps. With the search experience now being a compact UI on iPad, you can be inside an app and you can use command space to search for an app from there as well. So we felt like the app library was really well suited for iPhone. And I think also people want or at least we say we want iPad to be different. Like you have the workspace multitasking on the iPad that you don't have on the iPhone, but yet at the same time, we want them to be the same. So it's sort of a, you always have to do a sorting operation every time you put out features. Exactly. The other thing I really, really liked was app clips um, because this has sort of been the promise of mobile software forever. And I don't think anybody's really delivered on it. That ability to I show up in a new place, maybe it's to rent a car, to park a car, to get a a city bike or something, and I have to download an app. Well, first I have to figure out what the acronym is for the the local governing body that controls that. I have to find the app, I have to download it, I have to sign in, I have to add a payment system to it. And it's, it's so much work when you are in such a stressful situation. And by the looks of app clips, it's like NFC tap or scan the code, Sign in with Apple, pay with Apple Pay, and you're getting your family into the hotel or on those bikes and your day is good. That's exactly it. And that's that's why I think it's going to be so powerful because app clips are a great way to discover apps and they are a great way to use these small parts of an app just at the moment you need it. So instead of um, you know having to download them ahead of time or having to figure it out just as you said, you can just scan an, a QR code or tap an NFC or even an app clip code, which we're launching later this year, to, uh, to invoke these quick and seamless experiences that get you what you need just at that moment. And you can obviously leverage Apple Pay um, the developers have that option as well, or sign in with Apple to make it just completely seamless and quick and uh, very, very functional. So I think uh, I can't wait to see what developers bring there. I know you're not supposed to have favorites like with your with your technology. You're not supposed to have favorites with your kids. But do you have any favorites this year, like anything in maps or messages or the perennial favorite Memoji? Uh, anything that really stood out to you? Um. You're right to say we're not supposed to have favorites. I I think the app library is one of, of the features that really stood out to me in terms of um, utility and just just changing the way I've been using my phone. I also really love pinned conversations and messages. It just changes the the messages view in a way that is really useful. It keeps those conversations that I that I love, that the people and my friends and family that I talk to the most, right at the top, regardless of how many other you know conversations and chatter is happening in messages, especially this time of year where yeah. where we're talking back and forth a lot. So I think that that has been a really great feature that I've been using a lot. I also, uh, you know, low-key appreciate that you added options for the shelter-in-place hair that so many of us are. <laughs> just longer versions of every hairstyle. <laughs> That's, I, I haven't seen it described that way, but yeah. And obviously face coverings are very yes. relevant right now, and that's yeah. uh, something you can add on to as well. No, I appreciate that because I think culture and technology play 
back and forth with each other. And the more those things are surfaced in technology, like the, the culture obviously inspires you, but then you can inspire the culture right back. Absolutely. And and there there's a lot of work that goes into that as well. Uh, we obviously have beards and as an option in in our Memoji. And so in order to add face max, it's not that it's not that trivial to yeah. figure out, you know, how it goes on top of your beard. So it just, you know, whereas it looks cute, but there's a ton of engineering work that goes into that uh, that behind the scenes. The, the maps were really, really interesting to me and not just selfishly because I'm in Canada and you announced that you're rolling out the new maps to Canada now too. But the stuff that you're doing like bike directions, I found fascinating because that's a tricky problem. You have bike paths and streets and you have uh, elevation and no elevation, stairs and no stairs. And do, do you show me the fastest route? Do you show me the easiest route? And you're doing a really good job sort of give, not just balancing it, but giving me options for those things. Yeah, I mean, we're leveraging the power of the new map that we rolled out in the U.S. And as you mentioned, is coming to Canada and the U.K. and Ireland yeah. um, later this year. And we're, we're leveraging the rich detail that comes with those maps. I mean, we drove around all these uh, cities to, to get this rich detail. And then we're bringing that right into cycling directions as the new feature this year. And what's really great is that we do offer sort of customized um, directions just for cycling. So for example, will tell you to dismount and walk your bike if, if, if you're going through an area that you can't cycle through, or we'll tell you to cross the street and turn left for those maneuvers. And so those are specific to cycling that we've added that. And the other cool feature that I really love is that you can see sort of the elevation of your route. So for me personally, I will always choose to avoid that. But if you are going through um, a hill or something like that, we'll show you a dotted line to see where you are along that hill. So you can see how much you have left of it, uh, which is really just a great feature. So you can keep tracking how um, I can make when, it. I can make it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And as you said, just like in driving, we'll, off we'll offer different route options. So you can choose if you want the fastest one that maybe has uh, a steeper hill or if you want to take the long route, but, um, but a little bit of an easier ride. You didn't take the easy way out. You didn't like, oh, the car can't go there. We're not going to we're not going to show you these areas. People got out and they biked and they walked and they. So e even when the street ends, the maps don't end. Yeah, exactly. It's really, uh, really just rich detail that that our new map is able to to provide there, and we're we're excited to see it come to new cities: San Francisco, New York, uh, Los Angeles, to start with, and the number of cities in, in China as well. I want to ask you, what is it like engineering all this stuff? Because Apple is privacy by design. It really isn't an afterthought or a bolt-on or it would be nice. But when you do all these features, like when you do the on-device intelligence, you, you have to architect it in a way that's private. And does that, is that constraint sort of inspirational or is it something you're always thinking about in the back of your mind? I think it is an opportunity to innovate. Um, and, you know, one of the things that talk about when we're starting out at a feature and thinking about what do we want to build, how can it be great, is really something that Craig said on stage um, a couple years ago. He had this um, slide that talked about great features and then great privacy, and then there was this swoop that went through both this arrow. And that's kind of what I, I talk about all of us doing together um, is building that swoop of how do we get the great features and the great privacy. So I think that that's something that engineers across all of Apple really take to heart and pride themselves in us figuring out how to, to do both um, in a way that our users will love. 
It's funny because there's that old saying, you know, if you sell hammers, everything looks like a nail. And I get the feeling that data harvesting companies, you know, everything to them is data harvesting. And we've never really understood that, like not really data abuse, but data exploitation maybe as a way. They've seen that as uh, in order, if you get data, you have to then exploit that data. And I think you've demonstrated over the last few years that you can acquire enough data to provide a benefit to the user without you having to then go and sell things against it. Well, and I think some of the features that Cecilia talked about with, you know, app in the app library, your apps automatically arrange for you with on-device intelligence. I think that's where we start with is thinking about how can we do something on-device um, and thinking about data minimization. What data do we really need to use to actually make the feature great? Um, and that's really where we start with any feature when we're thinking about building it. And there's this sort of... Um you know, you guys made privacy popular, but previously it was to the cloud and then it was AI, you know, and now privacy is getting stage time. But it feels like um, other companies will conflate privacy with data retention, like, oh, yeah, we'll delete your data in three months. That's privacy. Or we'll use end to end encryption to get the data. And that's privacy. But uh, first, Tim and then Craig really did lay out that process of data minimization and, and how you're handling it. And I think that's a substantive difference that people should understand. Yeah, I th- those pillars that, you know, Tim, Craig, and we talk about on device intelligence, uh, data minimization, security, consent and transparency really guide how we approach features and how we build them across the company. Um, and I think it's that focus. And, you know, honestly, the more people who are building and thinking about privacy across the, the ecosystem is great for all users. And so um, I'm excited by when app developers come and talk to us in labs and they're excited, how can I build great privacy? What tools can I use? How can I make using an out-of-process picker um, so users can just choose exactly which photos they want to give me? Um, great. I think that's the part I get really excited about, especially this week, is hearing about how everyone, all the developers are also also um, getting excited about privacy and thinking about how to build it into their experiences. One of my favorite comments from Craig a few years ago, where he's like, we don't need to suck up your photos to find out what a mountain looks like. We can go get a picture of a mountain yeah. from anywhere. And that's been one of the knocks on Apple is saying that if you don't harvest the data, you can't do the AI. And if you don't do it on the cloud, you can't use all the machine learning models. But I think you've also shown that you're putting supercomputers in everyone's pockets and laps, and those computers can crunch data as well as any cloud server. Yeah, I think our devices are getting more and more powerful and can really make can really enable so many scenarios. But we're also looking at other ways to do uh, machine learning through differential privacy, private federated learning, and exploring those kind of technologies as well um, and continuing to evolve in that space. The differential privacy, I think that's, you know, there's a lot of words, but I always thought of it like if you're at the dinner table and half of you like Star Wars and half of you like Star Trek, uh, and you don't want to start any family fights, you know, ha- a bunch <laughs> of you can just lie about it. And then the statistics model can figure out the quantity of the lies and get the answer without anybody getting food thrown at them at the dinner table. That's a great metaphor. I never really thought about it that way, but I think I might steal it. <laughs> I probably stole it from you guys before, so <laughs> but you're welcome to it. One of the things I saw immediately was after the beta downloaded, it was a bunch of developers, Django came to mind, where they immediately pulled up their website and the tracking detection said zero trackers. And they were incredibly proud of that. It was sort of a validation for their business model. Was that something you anticipated that 
not not just sort of shaming the worst of the worst of the tracker people, but it being a point of pride for the people who were doing things maybe in a, in, in a more um, upfront way. I love that where, you know, allowing the developers to celebrate where they're doing great privacy. Um, and so I think that was something that we hoped we would have developers do and also be an example of, you know, sometimes you might not know code bases can get large. And so giving developers tools to look at what they're doing and to better understand uh, the impact that it might have on users. And so then they can go and possibly change their practices if they're surprised about what's happening. I don't think a business model should ever be hidden. Like if, if, if that is your business model, you should be proud of it. And if you're using tracking and if you're using cross-site tracking and if you're doing these things, you should be able to tell your customers or the people that you're taking this information from that you're doing it. You should be proud of it. And uh, this reminds me of sort of like when you did battery shaming and suddenly everybody saw where their power was going. This is sort of now everybody knows where their information is going. And I don't know why there would be any pushback on that. So, you know, I think we've, we've shipped intelligent tracking protection in Safari for a number of years. And we wanted to this year bring that level of protection to apps. And so as we think that tracking should be with consent and transparency, as you mentioned, you know, we wanted to let users choose whether they want to be tracked across companies. And so users might not understand what's happening with tracking today. They may not understand the data that they give to an app developer may be provided to a different company or website and then used for things like yeah. monetization um, and uh, personalized advertising, as well as sharing that data with data brokers. And so we want to make sure that users have an ability to choose whether they would like to participate in that or not. And the other thing that was super interesting to me is that, you know, some people are pitting this as Apple versus the advertising industry, you know, sort of like uh, you're coming after them. But in my opinion, you're helping make them better. Uh, Again, like, I don't think you should ever use a business model that you're ashamed to show to the people that you're using it with. And to me, this gives them tools to sort of get a, a, a better view of how they're, they're doing their business and maybe get a better business out of it. And it's important to say that we definitely think in-app advertising is key to many of our developers, and we are not against that. Um, we think that it's a vibrant part of our app ecosystem, and we think that there are many different ways that we can do that in a more privacy-friendly way. So one example is this year we're expanding SK Ad Network to make sure that uh, there is a privacy-friendly way to do ad attribution. And so this is really making it so if you have one app, um, app A and app B, and app B runs an ad in app A to get users to be aware, download their app, um, then if a user actually taps on that ad, goes and downloads the app, there's a way to learn that that app was tapped on, there was a purchase made or just a download, all without revealing who that actual user who did those taps are. And this can also help you choose things like if you're running multiple different kinds of ads to be clear about which ads are performing well. Is it a blue app? Is it a green app? And to be able to do all of that without attributing it back to an individual user. And I love that because you've been doing privacy forever. You know, Craig's talked about that too. Steve Jobs famously to Walt Mossberg explained, you know, ask them, ask them again, keep asking them. Uh, And year after year, you just keep rolling out these new privacy features. I was saying before, it's like a a benevolent privacy machine. And do you sort of 
take it on a year-by-year basis, think about what you can do, or do you have a grand vision of privacy you uh, you know, willing to adjust it, of course, but that you're sort of building towards over time? Well, I think we want users to be able to make great decisions for themselves. And so with this year, with the in the app store, we're making it clear for users to understand the privacy practices of an app before they download it. And so today we have in the app store the ability to access the privacy policy of any app. But we want to go a step further and make it easier to understand what information that an app is collecting and how they're planning to use it. This is similar to something like nutrition labels. So what's in food is hard to understand when you stare at a package, but there's this idea of highlighting the key important information. And that's really what we're trying to do this year is make it easier for you to understand what data apps collect that's linked to you um, and if these apps in fact share it. So apps will provide information about their app, self-declare, and we will show a summary within the app store product page to let users see this information before they download it. It's the thing I love. I keep saying thing I love so much. I love all of this. And people are going to say that I'm a complete privacy fanboy. And I am. I think it's, you know, going back to the West Wing, it's the, it's, it is the thing of our time. Mm-hmm. Um, I love like, like last year, I think it was last year, you, you made apps declare when they were using Bluetooth. And all of a sudden, we saw a bunch of apps that had no need to use Bluetooth suddenly popping up. And this year, you're showing when the clipboard is being used. And all of a sudden, we have apps that, have, that are, we're not doing anything with the clipboard. All of a sudden, it's popping up saying clipboard red, clipboard red. And I sort of love the the moxie that goes into adding features like that. Well, I think it's helping users understand what's happening to their data. And, you know, there's other things we're adding also this year around providing more control to users. So, for example, this year we're continuing to add on to the controls that we've built for location by allowing users to choose to share only their approximate location with an app developer, which I'm really excited about. We mentioned the on-device intelligence, and we've also, maps has been a big issue because people have felt like they need to either sacrifice privacy for quality, for example, let everything about them be measured so they get better traffic or they get better routing. You're doing, you're doing that in a way, too, where I can feel comfortable contributing and going through the routing without feeling like I'm being chewed up by some machine at the same time. Yeah, I think Maps is a great example of where we've applied some of those privacy pillars that we talked about earlier. Really thinking about data minimization, what data is needed to be able to provide great directions to you. So, you know, when you want to do, when you want to learn how to get somewhere, you know, providing information that enables that. But then, you know, we don't need to know that Renee wanted to get somewhere. And so making it so, you know, how you use Apple Maps is not tied to you is a key part of that story. Yeah, it's it's a horrible analogy, but I keep making it. It's like you go out to dinner and you each pay for your own dinner. It's not like you're getting this huge banquet and then someone's leering at you afterwards. And it's just as a customer, it's so much a better feeling when when you don't feel like you're obligated at the end of of a transaction. Yeah, I think it's that innovation that we do across the company that I think keeps making me excited for every WWDC and what we're doing in the future. Because I think that taking some of those things that seem like might be a challenge initially and going forth and building new technologies that really um, enable these great features and great privacy. It's the thing that makes me really excited to work at Apple. 
Well, I, I know our, our time is limited, so I don't want to keep you any longer than I have to. But I do want to thank all of you, you know, everyone on all of your teams for doing all of this, because I know it's, you know, in, in the best of years, WWDC is no small thing. And spending all of your time doing all of this while everything else is going on all around you uh, is just it's it's super appreciated. I really want to thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's really great to see the enthusiasm and the excitement and, and people see these features as they're out there and announced to the world. Thank you so much for your time. Powering all of this, every new bit of software and hardware, and even recommendations in services, everything that sci-fi calls artificial intelligence, AI, is really machine learning. And to learn more about that, check out Brilliant's new neural networks course. Here's an example from something that we're just gonna keep seeing more and more of. You can wire up just 50 neurons and using that type of feedback, build a network that's capable of classifying handwritten digits. But really, recognizing and classifying almost everything eventually. Whether you're a student looking to get ahead while school's out, a professional who wants to brush up on cutting edge topics, or someone who just wants to understand, maybe even be part of how all this technology is changing the world, check out Brilliant. Go to brilliant.org slash and sign up for free. And the first 200 of you can also level up with 20% off the annual premium subscription. Thanks, Brilliant. Thanks to all of you for your support. Check out the WWC 2020 playlist for more and see you next video.